We need to be men of faith, men of the book, men who trust God. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. You're listening to Trust, a series preached through the book of Habakkuk. For more audio and theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Please open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we will get one to you. Habakkuk chapter 3, and I'm not going to tell you where that is. I'm going to let you hunt it down. Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to close the book of Habakkuk today, the last three verses. And today in our family service, if you have to leave with your kids... I just want to say that's, that's fine. That may happen. If you have to run out with the kids, we do have bleachers in the back if you want to come back in and resettle the kids. So uh, if you've got a young one that is very excited about the teaching today and just over-energized, um, and that's a struggle for you, you can grab a spot on the bleachers. So Habakkuk chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19, and then we'll pray and get to work. Beginning in verse 17, it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning with gratitude for the privilege and freedom to worship you, to study your word. And we ask, Lord, even now that you would illuminate this text to us. We have been so blessed by the study of this minor prophecy. And Lord, we thank you that you inspired the writers of Scripture uh, by your Holy Spirit to um, write what they wrote, to see what they saw, to communicate what you would want them to communicate. And here we are, thousands of years later, studying the words that you inspired. And Lord, yet we are still impacted, we're still moved, we're still uh, able to apply these uh, to 21st century America. And we thank you that your word has the power to do that. And so, Lord, I know today there are some with doubts. There are some today with great questions about really who you are. Uh, there are some today who are on the fence theologically and, and just uh, have their maybe anger or angst towards the church or towards um, specific things that Christianity represents. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give them an open heart to hear from you, that you would give them uh, the ability by your spirit to hear the voice of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Lord, do that work today that only your Holy Spirit can do. And for those of us, Lord, on the fence with our faith, we've been, we've been struggling and wrestling uh, with some difficulty. Lord, would today be the day that we settle it and fix our eyes upon you alone. We love you, we worship you, and we thank you as we close this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Many of you know, if you've hung out with me for a while or if you've been coming to Shoreline for a while, many of you know that I'm kind of a foodie, right? There's specific foods that I will never discriminate against. And many of you know one of my favorite foods is, of course, the donuts. Yes, now, I'm sad that you guys knew that. I could quote scripture and someone's not going to know the answer to that. But I can say, I love what? And you're going to say donuts. Lord, forgive me. That's going to be my ministry for years to come. Lord, help me. Well, I won't discriminate against Thai food, and I certainly would not turn down Chinese food. And at the close of every 
Chinese restaurant takeout experience that I've ever had. At the bottom of the bag, you've seen it, you reach into the bag, and at the very bottom is kind of a, a lame dessert. It's, it's those kind of stale, odd-shaped crackers that we call fortune cookies. And we know, don't we, that the little message inside the fortune cookie is absolutely nonsensical. It's ridiculous. No one is, I hope, today placing their faith in the message of a fortune cookie. Uh, but some people do. Some people actually believe this. There's different messages. Um, the reason we don't believe that is because of what they actually say. They're supposed to bring clarity to your life. Here's an example of one. Uh, one of them might say, avoid taking unnecessary gambles. And then your lucky numbers today are 12, 14, 17, etc. Uh, the reason these are silly is because they're so vague in general, right? They say something like this. Uh, one of them says, something wonderful is about to happen to you. And you're thinking, oh, I'm actually going to get a real Chinese dessert and not this gross cracker. Um, it could be anything, right? I, I, that applies to everyone, to anyone. I'm going to take a breath. That's wonderful, right? So it's just very vague. My, my favorite fortune cookie message is actually this one. Help, I'm being held prisoner in a Chinese bakery. <laughs> It's actually not funny at all. That's horrible. Uh, now, I, I would be shocked and amazed if anyone here actually placed your faith in what that said. But there's something weird in me that when I'm eating that fortune cookie, I, I can't help but at least to glance at the message. I still want to see what it says, even though I know it's ridiculous and, and nonsensical, and I never have bought a lottery ticket, so you don't need to worry about me doing that. But, but there's something about that I still just kind of want to read it. I don't know if I'm the only one, probably. Uh, but to place our faith in that is silly. Why? Because that is a silly object, a, a ridiculous object to place our faith in. But for a minute, think about the different things that we do place our faith in. And many of us would say, yeah, I would never trust a fortune cookie message. But how many of us rely on things that maybe are a little more sophisticated, a little more expensive, a little more advanced, and yet we still place our faith in them? As some of us kids who are here today in the service, we place a little bit of our faith in our parents' approval on us. Or we place our faith in getting good grades, and we think that God's happy with us as long as we're getting good grades. Some of us as teens, we place our faith in our friendships around us. And as long as we're sitting at the cool table, we're known by people, hey, we've got a lot of likes on our Facebook or Instagram or Snap, then now we're liked, now we're affirmed. As grown-ups, we do the same thing. We place our faith maybe in our boat, maybe in our bank account, our 401k. We look ahead to the future and say, we've got a large family. We've got a healthy diagnosis. Uh, our family members will never die. And then when these become the objects of our faith, church, they will invariably uh, crush us. Uh, why is that? Because the things that we place our faith in will ultimately disappoint us unless they're greater than us, right? Uh, see, what happens is that businesses downsize and people lose their jobs. Engines fail. Uh, stock markets crash. Spouses make foolish decisions and they sin against us. Our bodies are frail and people actually die. So where does our faith lie? Our faith must be in an object greater than ourselves, an object that's immovable, that's trustworthy, and that's true. And in the midst of chaos, because we will eventually face chaos at some level in our life, who can we turn to who won't fail us? We've been studying the book of Habakkuk for the last four weeks. This is our fifth week. And just to summarize, the prophet um, opens his book with a despairing tone of doubt. And he begins to question, is God fair? 
Uh, is God even there? Why isn't God stepping in and, and, and intervening in the life of his people who seem to be wayward? Why isn't God judging uh, us as his followers? And then God says, well, actually, I am going to judge, but you'll be astounded at my means of judgment to my people. And Habakkuk says, well, what are the ju- who's going to be that means? And God begins to say, I'm going to use the Chaldeans, the, what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire, to be the means of judgment against uh, his very people. And so they are going to come. They're going to cart off the southern kingdom of Judah up to Babylon. And then Habakkuk says, well, is that fair to use an evil kingdom to judge evil wickedness in your people? Is that even fair? And God says, well, let me just reassure you, there will be swift judgment upon Babylon, and it will come at the proper time. So last week we saw the prophet begin to turn his heart and begin to sing his Shigenoth song, and we kind of stopped it at, verse, at the end of verse 16, and here we conclude his song. So actually what we're doing today is we're studying a divinely inspired song together, uh, which is an affirmation of trust in the midst of chaos. One person said that these last three verses of Habakkuk are a culmination from gloom to glory. Uh, They said that Habakkuk has moved from anxiety to perplexity to ecstasy. We began the book with him kind of in a valley, and then he made his way up to the watchtower, and now we see him ascending even to Uh, the heights of a mountaintop. And so as we conclude the book today, uh, we have a final resolve of the prophet, and we're going to learn what it truly means to have biblical faith. We're going to learn that it's, listen, it's not the intensity of your faith. It's not the power of your faith, the zeal of your faith, the size of your faith, or even the result or evidence of your faith, but the object of your faith that makes all the difference. And unlike fortune cookies, who we place our faith in Uh, will be trustworthy, will be immovable, he'll be steadfast and true. And no matter what kind of obstacles we face, because we will face them, it's our sovereign Lord who we can ultimately embrace and hang on to. Benjamin Franklin, who wasn't a Christian, though he did respect the Bible, he was once traveling in France, and he came to the city of Paris. And in the city of Paris, there were some uh, detractors of the Bible, which there are in any generation. These were a kind of sophisticated, cultural, elite folks who began to meet and despise the Bible and began to speak against it and talk about how there's uh, errors within it. Well, then they found out that Franklin held like um, reverential awe for the Bible, and so they began to mock Benjamin Franklin himself. Well, one evening he came and sat with them, and he said, listen, I found a manuscript of a poem, and it's so remarkable, I wanted to share it with you and see what your impressions were, since you guys are so amazing. And so he began to read Habakkuk 3, verses 17, 18, and 19, what we're about to study. Uh, and the group was so impressed by the poem that they began to kind of cheer, and, and they received it with adoration and admiration. And they said, what a magnificent poem. Where is that found? Who wrote that? And Benjamin Franklin began to chuckle, and he said, it's in your Bibles. Just turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. It's a beautiful passage. And so uh, here's how we're going to outline it today. Again, it's a little bit hard to outline a song, but here's how we're going to outline these three verses today. If you're taking note, we're going to see verse 17, the dilemma of life. Uh, Life will bring us dilemma. Then we're going to see the delight in the Lord. This seems a little bit countercultural. 
And then we'll close up with the demeanor of God's people in verse 19. All right, so that's where we're going today. Let's look at the dilemma of the Lord in verse 17. Look at it with me again. And there's actually six areas of great concern for the people of Israel. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. We're going to put all of those on the screen and kind of walk through these for a few moments, all right? So the first one he says is that the fig tree is not blossoming. That doesn't seem like such a big deal. The tree's not blossoming. None of you lost sleep if you lost a few leaves on the tree, I would surmise. It's not something to stress out about. But don't forget, this is before mankind had the technology of canning and refrigeration. So this this is a very big deal. What you eat in the winter is very important. And dried fruit like figs, like raisins, were the staple diet in the Middle East during the winter months. And so no figs on the fig tree means, man, we're in store for a long, hard winter. Remember, Jesus cursed the fig tree because it showed leaves, and it showed a sign with the leaves of bearing fruit. And yet, though it had the outward leaves, it didn't actually bear fruit. And that's a picture of hypocrisy, of showing that you've been a believer for a long time. So people go, oh, there must be fruit in your life, but it's lacking. Right? And that's a picture of that. Uh, but to not have any figs blossoming is dangerous for the winter months. So that's a problem. Secondly, there's no fruit on the vines. This is, of course, speaking of uh, the fruit of the vine, grapes or raisins, or uh, more specifically, wine. You can't make wine without grapes on the vine. Now, Moses promised, or Moses rather, described the promised land as a land of grain and wine in Deuteronomy 33. So in a land of wine... Now it's missing. The, the vines are producing nothing. And so this is a concern because scripturally, a lack of wine is often described as a curse. In the first miracle that Jesus performed in John chapter 2, we've studied John recently, so if you want to hear what we said in our teaching in John chapter 2, uh, actually an absence of wine is a problem. In Deuteronomy 28, obedience to the Mosaic covenant would result in fruitful ground for the Israelites. But disobedience, God said, would result in vineyards uh, that would actually produce no wine because the worms would come and eat the grapes. Uh, God even warned in Deuteronomy 28, 51, that a foreign nation would one day come and leave the Israelites with no wine, no oil, no grain. And so this is a picture, no fruit on the vine. This is a picture of emptiness and judgment and desolation. But then it says the produce of the olive fails. And a lot of us are like, I'm fine with that. I'm not a big olive fan. I don't sit around and eat olives. What's the big deal? Well, the produce of the olive is is oil. So what he's speaking about here, if you think about Israel, it's a land that's filled with olive trees. And you would use olive oil for a variety of things, for cooking food, for anointing kings, for even lighting your lamp. Remember, it was olive oil that was used to light the lamp in the tabernacle, what the Jews later called the menorah. Uh, So now think about it. You can't cook your food. So even if you had food, you can't cook it efficiently. Uh, You can't anoint your king. You can't light the lamp that was in the temple. This is almost like the very soul of Israel has been taken away. The very centerpiece of their worship, of their of their priesthood, of their kingship, and of the daily staple diet. It's taken away. Well, then it says the fields yield no food. I don't know why we put no spaces in there, but we just kind of wanted to hashtag that. The fields (laughs) yield no food. Uh, Think about this. The grain crops were easy to store, 
And that was your basic diet. And yet, uh, there's utter crop failure. Everything you go out to plant dies. You put the seeds in the ground, nothing plants, nothing comes up. Then he says the flock is cut off from the fold. Now, the larger your flock, the more wealthier you were, but it was understood that almost everyone had at least a small flock of goats or sheep, pretty much everyone. Uh, And it also provided you with milk and with meat. So to lose the figs and the fruit, I mean, that's one thing. I can kind of go without them. But don't take away my meat, all right? I'm not going to lose my meat and my diet. We went out with some friends recently to a Brazilian steakhouse in town. I think you know the one I'm talking about. And you basically order meat, and it just keeps coming to your table. And you turn this little, this little tab over, and it goes green. And green is the light of life because they just keep bringing meat to you. Praise Jesus. They just keep bringing it. I was clapping. I was worshiping as they brought the food. I was worshiping Jesus, but it was exciting. Don't take meat out of someone's diet, and yet that's what's happening. Now the clothing, milk, and meat supply. Well, then it gets worse. This is kind of the final straw. There's no herd in the stalls. Even the herd that was used as a beast of burden to do the work in the field or to supply the meat on occasion to be offered as a sacrifice, it's gone. So now there's nothing left. There's no milk of any kind. There's no dairy. There's no meat. Even the vegans are starving. There's no produce, right? This is a picture of utter desolation in every area of life for the people of God. Now think about where we get our food, okay? I know we are used to now Uber Eats and Publix, but this would have been completely wiped out. Their entire means of supply was cut off. Now picture what this would look like for us today. And this is a little bit hard for us to, to think about, but just think about today. If the economy were to plummet, your entire retirement and savings uh, was completely wiped out. Now it's got a few dollars left, if any. Um, the boat that you bought that you hoped would be kind of a future fun or, or sale and investment, right, uh, has sprung a leak. Uh, there's a, a sinkhole on your property which destroys your home. You say, well, I don't own, I rent. Okay, so the landlord has you evicted. Hey, I'm sorry, your lease is up. Uh, your car that you drive, the engine seizes, but it doesn't matter because gas at a gallon is now $50 and all the gas stations are out of gas anyway. Uh, Think about it. No electricity, which means there's no food in the fridge, which is bad, but then there's no hot showers, which is maybe worse, but then there's no Wi-Fi, which is worst of all, okay? Give me Wi-Fi or give me death. (laughs) We remember we had Irma come through, and some of us were kind of like leaving the state. The people who stayed said, hey, I I miss the AC, but really I miss the Wi-Fi. Give me the Wi-Fi back. Now just think about this. Every grocery store in town closes. Now, all the food you tuck away in the pantry from neglect has been eaten. There's nothing left even in the pantry. Uh, And now just empty shelves. And that's a small taste of what Habakkuk is portraying here. Now, you would imagine his response after that is, and, in verse 18, and I am mad at the Lord. How dare he do this to me? Well, some of us have that response, don't we? Lord, why did that person die? It's not fair. I don't appreciate that. Lord, you took away my comfort. You took away my joy. It's because we were placing our faith in the wrong object. But notice the second point, that he delights in the Lord. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Note with me the big transitional phrase here, yet I. Habakkuk says it doesn't matter what's happening externally. Yet I, I I'll rejoice in the Lord. He sees his world caving in around him, and yet he can confidently assert, yet I. I. This morning, it may be your health that's failing you, yet I. 
Maybe it's your finances that are overwhelming you. Yet I. Are you in the midst of a major trial that is absolutely taxing you physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I haven't made this public yet, but a few weeks ago, I began experiencing some very strange medical conditions. It was very concerning, very scary. Uh, the last thing you ever do is look up WebMD, by the way. Don't ever self-diagnose, okay? Because we as Google doctors are much wiser than the actual doctors, right? And so I went and had a few scans of the brain, a few scans of the body to kind of figure out what's going on. Some of you shoreliners were helpful in hooking us up with different um, places that do that. So thank you guys for the, your help with that. And it was a little bit concerning, a little bit scary. And we, we've finally gotten an answer that it's not a major health concern. It's not a scare. We can praise God. But I just want you to know, in the midst of laying there on the table, having the MRI or the CT scan, in that moment, I'm reciting these verses. Lord, I don't know what the outcome of this is going to be. Yet I, I will trust you. It's not a coincidence that we'd be going through this book study and have this kind of scare, this kind of fear. But in that moment, when we're, when we're clinging on to whatever we can cling on to, and we can't cling to a good diagnosis because it's not there yet, we can cling to the Lord. And I can say that from, from experience. We can cling to the Lord. He's faithful with us in the MRI scan. He's faithful with us even when we receive bad news. The word that Habakkuk uses for rejoice here in Hebrew is translated very interestingly. The word for Hebrew uh, for rejoice is this, jump for joy, jump for joy. When he says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation, that phrase take joy, it's translated, you won't believe this, it actually is, to spin around under the influence of violent emotion such as joy. I did a slow-mo spin because I didn't want to get dizzy. But, uh, man, how, how crazy is this? This is a completely mismatched internal response compared to the circumstances the follower of God is facing outwardly. Uh, James has a counterpart verse in the New Testament. James 1, 2, and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And he goes on to talk about how that's maturity. Now, sometimes we think we're supposed to thank God for our trials, but no, the idea is to accurately thank God in our trials. We rejoice in the Lord as we suffer in the trial. Habakkuk could take joy in the God of his salvation and do what I call a joyful jig because he knew that ultimately salvation comes from God. Habakkuk could say like Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him, Job 3, 13, 15. See, church, joy is not found in circumstances, in people, in resources. There's invariably a temptation within us to begin to place our confidence in those things, in the people around us, in resources that we have, in the circumstances of the life. But here's the danger. 100% of the time, those things will disappoint or disillusion us. And there's going to come a time, if you've been placing your faith in that, whether it's your health, your finances, a person, a relationship, where that will disappoint you, that will fail you, and your confidence will begin to wane. But see, no, joy is an attitude that's determined by confidence, not in a circumstance, but in God alone. I read this week about the two birds that live in the desert, the hummingbird and the vulture, and I thought this was interesting. Both of these birds fly over the desert, scanning the horizon, uh, and looking for food. And what the vultures see is rotting meat. They see death. They see decomposition and decay. And they thrive on that. 
Hummingbirds, on the other hand, ignore that and look for the color of the desert flowers. And I thought, yeah, that's kind of a cool picture. Some of us, when we look at our life, we're only looking for the problem. We're only looking for um, seeking what's in the past. We live in the past versus living on new life. Now, so no matter what you're facing today, can you say like Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, in Jehovah, in Yahweh, the God of my salvation. And I like how personal he makes this. He says, I will rejoice, though everything outside's falling apart. I'm making a personal profession that it's, it's the Lord that I trust, that he's the God of my personal salvation. Today, listen, young people, you can't rely on mom and dad's faith for salvation. You can't rely on someone else's interpretation of scripture. This morning, you must come to Jesus. You must turn from your sin. The wrath of God abides upon you unless you are to receive him, repent of your sin, trust in Christ for salvation. You may not have all the theological answers figured out now, but my encouragement, my exhortation to you is that you'd be willing to submit your life to Jesus, to trust him. We'll look at our third section, the final verse, verse 19, and this is the demeanor of not just Habakkuk, but God's people. He says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And just a reminder, he says to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is a chorus. This is a song. Notice who is the object of the prophet's faith. Who's the source of his strength? It's God, the Lord. Yahweh Adonai, the sovereign Lord, is his strength. Now, the word for strength, circle that word if you have uh, your own Bible, it's fascinating in the Hebrew. It actually can be translated as strength, but also might. The Lord is my might. It can be translated my wealth, and it can also be translated army. The Lord is my army. Wow, why does he say that? Because these are sources of provision, of protection, and of enabling. He's saying God is the one who defends me, who provides for me, and the one who enables me to walk this difficult life and yet to still achieve great things even when the world is collapsing around me. And he mentions a deer. In Scripture, we see a deer mentioned a lot. Sheep is the most often mentioned um, animal, and deer is a, is a follow-up. It's close. Uh, but the deer is pictured often throughout the Psalms as uh, panting by the water. Uh, but here, there's a different aspect that Habakkuk draws out. And this is a picture of strength and sure-footedness and beauty and speed. A deer is able to kind of ascend to these difficult places on mountaintops, and yet they're able to kind of go everywhere. I was driving down Lakewood Ranch Boulevard this week, and I thought it was appropriate. I was driving, and there's this random deer just on the side of the road. I was like, dear God, please don't run in front of my car. <laughs> but he was over there kind of drinking water in one of the uh, retention ponds. A deer is able to maneuver pretty much everywhere through rocky terrain and yet even come up to these great heights safely. I like what Spurgeon says as a picture of us. He says, our Lord will give us grace to follow the most difficult paths of duty without a stumble. He can fit our foot for the crags so that we shall be at home where apart from God we should perish. You see, this is where the false teaching known as the prosperity gospel really rips us off. I, I am adamantly opposed, vehemently opposed to this insidious doctrine which is no gospel at all, Paul says in Galatians 1. Any other gospel is not a gospel because it's not good news. The idea is that God only wants you healthy, wealthy, successful. 
He wants you to live large. You're never going to face sorrow. You're never going to face despair or sickness or calamity if you just have enough faith. What a lie from hell. Let the one who brings that distorted gospel be anathema, be accursed. That's what Paul says. He doesn't say, let him just kind of go sit in the corner and be rebuked. No, let him be cut off from Christ. Anyone who preaches that sinful idea. See, the greatest tragedy in human history, the most unjust and cruel of acts that have ever been perpetrated in humanity under heaven was the suffering, the unjust torture and execution of God's only son at the hand of wicked, sinful men. Did Jesus believe the prosperity gospel? Did Jesus not suffer? And yet in the midst of the most excruciating and wicked of trials, we hear our great high priest, what is he doing? He's interceding even for those who didn't understand what they were, do, what they were doing. We see him crying out from the cross, it is finished. We see the beauty of the atonement through the horror of the bleeding Savior. Uh, don't let someone rip you off with this ridiculous uh, false teaching. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross and scorned the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Uh, our demeanor in the midst of even death should be joy. I've met with people who have experienced a bad diagnosis or know that death is approaching. And it is an enemy and it is an unnatural enemy. And yet we can, uh, we can kind of affirm, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of sin is death, and yet God in Christ has given us the victory uh, over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. So our demeanor, even in the midst of death, should be joy, because the sovereign Lord himself is our strength, and the just shall live by his faith. Some of you missed this graphic because you weren't here for that first um, study in chapter 1. But I want to show you this real quick. This is not mine. Someone else came up with this. This is kind of the illustration of the journey of faith that many of us uh, go through. And so you begin at the bottom. This is kind of the starting point in your relationship with God. This is the beginning of faith. And, and then we start to grow in our faith. We start moving up. And we have this moment where we call the mountaintop. This is the best it can get. I am so close to God. There's nothing better. He's just amazing. He's in my everything. And yet something happens, a crisis of belief where what we know about God or perceive to know about God seems to be challenged by a difficulty in our life. And we go, well, either I'm going to choose to embrace the truth about God and his sovereignty, or I'm going to doubt it, and I'm going to drop into this what we call the dreaded dip. Now, what can happen there is you can fall away from your faith and just say, I don't even want to believe anymore. And I don't know if you were truly saved, if that's where you're willing to go. And yet, in those moments, we choose, we make a choice. I'm either going to abandon what I know is true, or I'm just going to ignore that I'm going through a trial, or I'm going I'm to actually trust and believe and embrace the truth of God and God himself in the midst of hardship. And that's when we begin to grow, and we begin to see our faith is encouraged, and we can look back and say, wow, God was faithful even in the dip. Some of you are going through that, that crisis of belief or that dip right now. Some of you are on the mountaintop, and you're like, Man, this is beautiful. I'm radiant. This is amazing. I love God. He's, at, he's my everything. Just know, eventually, we go through these um, scenarios. So remember, Habakkuk, his name means to wrestle. but It also means to embrace. He begins his prophecy wrestling with God. But in the end, what is he doing? He's embracing the God of his salvation. And, and when we do the same thing in difficult times, in the valley, God is faithful. 
And we see its faithfulness on behalf of his name and glory, and this increases our faith. We grow, we move through those times, we ascend another hill, and we look back and say, wow, I can't believe I had spiritual amnesia. God, thank you for being faithful to me in those moments of doubt and difficulty. You see, the dip is also known as doubt. And often doubt is a loss of proper perspective, isn't it? Am I the only one? Just a loss of perspective. I want to illustrate this to you guys for a minute. I've talked about this before. I love science, and um, I want to just think for a minute how grand God is. Just think about how big this room is in comparison to maybe the seat you're sitting in. This is a large room. And now we zoom out to Lakewood Ranch, Bradenton, Sarasota, the 941 area, Florida. We zoom out to the United States, to North America, to the Western Hemisphere, to the entire planet. We have a large planet in comparison size to where we are. It's hard, hard to find ourselves on the planet, right, uh, to just map ourselves from, the, from zooming out to maybe space. It's a little bit hard to locate where we're exactly at. And yet our planet is tiny in comparison to our sun. It would fit, they estimate, um, like what, over uh, 1.3 million Earths will fit into our star, the sun. 1.3 million Earths will fit into our sun. And yet our sun is a very small star. Our sun is actually kind of embarrassingly little, right, compared to some of the other stars. In fact, if you look up in the night sky at Orion, one of my favorite constellations, you'll see the little orange glowing star on the, I think it's the third one on the belt. Uh, And you'll notice that that is a star by the name of Betelgeuse, not the movie with Michael Keaton, uh, Betelgeuse, all right? And Betelgeuse in the night sky is orange and it's very small. And yet, if we decided, hey, let's sub our sun out for Betelgeuse, here's what it would look like if we were just to swap out our sun. Betelgeuse is the orange glow with the red kind of halo around it. And if you notice, the circumference of Betelgeuse would extend from the center of our solar system to step in for our sun all the way out to the orbit of Jupiter, all right? The orbit of Jupiter. You guys follow me? So if that were our sun, Saturn's orbit around it would now be Mercury, okay? That's how large Betelgeuse is. And yet, here's the interesting thing, talking about perspective. Betelgeuse in the night sky can be covered up with your thumb. You can stand there and just put your thumb to cover the glory, as it were, of that star. Now, how often is that true of us? The glory and the grandeur of the gospel, of the sovereign work of God, of his faithfulness, of his, of his truth, and yet we can cover that just with the smallest of circumstances, with the smallest of trials. How many of us allow a theological question to block our view of God, or a diagnosis we didn't see coming, or the taunts of an unbeliever, Someone challenges a verse in Scripture, and now we're giving up on all of Christian faith because of a simple, questionable doubt. Well, to apply this passage of Scripture today and the overall book of Habakkuk, I want us to consider Abraham. We can't do a series on trust without looking at the life of Abram. God, remember, speaks to him that you're going to be the father of many nations. His name's Abram, the father of and then he changes it to Abraham, father of many. He still doesn't have any children at that point. Uh, Abraham's wife can't get pregnant. They're old, and there's no reason to believe God. And in this moment, Abraham could have turned away from God in the dip and just said, you know what, I'm just going to abandon this whole concept of God. I'm just not going to believe you because you're telling me something that is impossible physically. 
And yet, in the moment, Abraham doesn't waver. He takes God at his word, and he begins to grow strong in his faith. He gives God all the glory in his life. Well, Paul picks up on that in the book of Romans. Look at this, Romans chapter 4. He says this, In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Remember, if he looked up in the sky, your offspring is going to be like the stars. If you look down into the ground at the sand, it's going to be like the sand. It's just going to be innumerable. So shall your offspring breathe. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Look at this, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, and that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham was willing to believe and not waver in unbelief. Does that describe you today? Are you willing to grow strong in your faith, to give glory to God, to not waver, being fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised? Let me just apply this to our dads today. It is Father's Day. I think it's interesting that Abram was the father of many nations. And notice what he begat to his children. What did he give them? What did he leave them? He left them faith. He was fully convinced God would keep his word, growing strong in his faith, living his life to give God all the glory. Dads, what better heritage can we leave our sons and daughters than a heritage of faith? Listen, if you're here today and you've bought into the world's lies that says that men abdicate their responsibility to their wife and they need to lean backward instead of leaning forward, and the only authority that the dad has in the home is over the remote, okay, you've bought into a lie. That doesn't mean we have to be kind of authoritarian and and harsh with our families, harsh with our wives. But we're to lead our families, men. We're to be the high priest of our home. We're to guide and direct and show an example for our wives and our kids to follow. We need to be men of faith, men of the book, men who trust God. I I like actually what Balaam said in Numbers 23, 19. He said, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Well, what a picture of faith, even from a guy who didn't have any. And I want to have that kind of faith so my kids don't say, you know, dad was the most fun dad ever. Or dad's cool. Or my dad was always at work. Or man, dad made lots of money and was successful. Now, I want my kids to declare my dad trusted God no matter what happened in his life. Amen? As we close, I want to invite our worship team forward. And we're going to close in a song of corporate declaration. Last week we closed with a picture of J. Hudson Taylor and his faith, and I found a quote this week which I thought was really appropriate to this idea. But on the screen, here's what he said. He said, not a great faith we need, but faith in a great God. You see, guys, it's not the awesomeness of our faith, but the object of our faith that matters. And my prayer for us as we conclude this book is that we would echo Habakkuk's prayer. That even if our entire world is falling around, uh, falling apart around us, that we will yet rejoice in the Lord. That we'd be willing to say, yet I. I. I will spin around. I will leap for joy because no matter what I may lose in this life, I've gained Christ. I think for us in this culture, it's a little hard to grasp that. It's a little hard to understand that because we have so much. We've been given so much. There could be a time when we 
have some of those things taken away from us. And in that moment, who do we really place our faith in? Is it us? Is it the circumstance? Is it the possession? Or is it the person, the person of Jesus? See, Jesus alone brings worth, hope, fulfillment, and life when all hope is lost. When all worth has run out, only emptiness and death abound, Jesus is still enough. And my prayer is that like Habakkuk, we will embrace the God of our salvation. That we can, like a deer, ascend even to the heights of his glorious grace. And we can do that by faith. The just shall live by faith. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this exceptional book that gets overlooked often. We thank you that this morning we can come before you with our needs, Lord, with many of our trials and circumstances that, Lord, when we've placed our faith in a person under heaven, when we've placed our faith in um, our health or in the situations around us, Lord, we can often uh, lose faith when those situations let us down. And so, Father, I pray for our church today that we would stop trusting in man, that we would stop trusting in the things around us and place our faith ultimately in Jesus alone. The just shall live by faith. So, Lord, allow us today to look to you, to rise up, to embrace the God that we can trust. Lord, forgive our doubt, forgive our, even our unbelief and our wavering. Lord, we're prone to wander, so forgive us, Lord, and help us to look to you today alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.